0: Hello and welcome to A History of Electronic Music, part 5. and welcome to the show. I'm Paul Schicke and today we're going to be sort of continuing on from part four, um, staying in the 60s pretty much, and I'm going to be talking about three things. I'm going to be talking about electronics in performance in the 1960s, um, the beginnings of computer music and the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. So straight on with electronics in performance. The first recorded use of a tape recorder as a live performance aid was in Mauricio Cagle's Transition 2, and he was an Argentine composer. And the piece uses a a pianist, a percussionist, and two tape recorders. And what happens is, the percussionist plays the soundboard, strings, and rim of the piano, the pianist plays the keys, and one tape plays back pre-recorded material, while the second records material that's played live, it's... um, spliced and looped live and then played back as an echo of things gone by. So that was the first example of it, but there's two names that really stand out in pioneering um, the use of tape as a, a live performance device, and they're two names familiar from last time, and they're John Cage and Karlheinz Heinz Stockhausen. Um, I talked briefly about them last time, so I won't go too much into their work this time. Well, first thing it's important to look at the reasons why live performance of electronics was so important at the time, um, because the stuff that was, it was very avant-garde that they were making and very abstract, and although they often worked in studios that were based around radio stations, they didn't get a lot of airtime, and record companies weren't very interested in either in releasing such unsellable material, so they had to perform it live in a, a standard classical sense, really and it was more of a continuation of classical music but using electronics within it so simply to get it heard they had to play it live let me talk a little bit about Heinz Stockhausen now last time i played you contact which is obviously a piece for a piano percussionist and a and electronics um but this time i'm going to play a small extract from a later piece which is from 1964 and it's called microphoney 1 and what happens in this is What's involved is a large tam-tam, two microphones, two bandpass filters, and two amplifiers. And it required six performers, um, two that operated the tam-tam, which is a kind of drum, um, two that held the mics and moved them about, and two that operated the filters and amplifiers. And using this method, because of the amplification, it could get sounds out of a tam-tam that would ordinarily be barely perceptible. The kind of instructions included in the score were rubbing the surface of the Tam-Tam with cardboard tubes, hitting it with a soft mallet, and scraping the surface of it. Um, Here's a a very short extract to give you an idea of what it was all about. (laughs) A bit of microphony number one from nineteen sixty four by Karlheinz Stockhausen, now, on to John Cage, he was particularly influential in the live electronics scene, um, and two pieces stand out in his early work. There was music for amplified toy pianos and cartridge music, both from nineteen sixty in the former, a single player plays any number of toy pianos which have been fitted with contact microphones. Contact microphones, by the way, are mics which, instead of the standard microphone, which picks up vibration from the air, they pick up vibrations from objects. So you can attach them to chairs and whatever you like, basically, and it's going to create completely different sounds, because the sound isn't travelling through the air, it's travelling through the object. So sounds that would not normally have been heard are highly amplified. For the second piece, cartridge music, I'll read a little quote from John Cage for that. The title cartridge music derives from the use in its performance of cartridges, that is phonograph pickups into which needles are inserted for playing recordings. Contact microphones are also used. These latter are applied to chairs, tables, waste baskets etc. Various suitable objects, toothpicks, matches, slinkies, piano wires, feathers etc. are inserted into the cartridges. Both the microphones and cartridges are connected to amplifiers that go to loudspeakers. The majority of the sounds produced being small and requiring amplification in order to be heard. So this was a way, again, of extracting different sounds from everyday objects. And because of the open-ended nature of the score, every performance would be unique, so therefore it was definitely a live piece and couldn't really be um, recorded and, and done in a studio. This idea of, of live performance and being a, a piece being different every time it's performed was taken a bit further with Cage's collaboration with the Merce Cunningham Dance Company and his piece Variations 5. This involved the use of motion sensors, which were actually theremins especially modified by Robert Moog, which the dancers triggered naturally as they performed their piece, although there were musicians and technicians that were responsible for the character and duration of the sound that was produced so it wasn't just the dancers that were in control. As well as producing a lot of the experimental live electronics at the time, Cage influenced many of his performers who themselves became experimental electronic composers. For instance, there was David Tudor, David Berman, Alvin Lucia, Gordon Mummer, Pauline Oliveros and Christian Wolfe, to name a few. And I've got some music by a couple of them. And the first one's by David Tudor, and it's called Rainforest Number 1, and it's kind of a reversal of the contact microphone idea because instead of attaching microphones to objects it attaches first oscillators and which send the signal to other objects to vibrate them um as as you would vibrate a speaker cone but instead of being made of paper these were um sculptures made of metal so they had a completely different sound and this technique led to a lot of added distortion um, and new harmonics, especially at the resonant frequencies. Um, so here it is. This was actually written in 1968, but it's performed in 1990. This is an extract from Rainforest by David Tudor. An extract from Rainforest by David Tudor. Um, You can see why it's called Rainforest, because that's what it sounds like, but I assure you that it's purely electronic. Another collaborator of John Cage at the time was Pauline Oliveros, who with Ramon Sender formed the San Francisco Tape Music Centre in the early 60s. Apparently they used whatever equipment they could get get hold of, and they used to put on multimedia-based performances, basically what they called happenings back then. And this piece I'm going to play, although I don't know whether it was actually performed live, I know it was recorded in a studio live, which is unusual at the time, but I'll again quote from Pauline Oliveros before I start, before I play it. In the days of the so-called classical electronic studio, real-time performance was rare. I invented a technique that allowed me to play my pieces instead of cutting and splicing them. I wanted to add a record to my mix of tape-delayed sounds, so I picked up a record that was lying around in the studio and put it on the turntable. It turned out to be from Madam Butterfly. Then I improvised with it in real time. And here's the result. This is part of Bye Bye Butterfly by Pauline Oliveros. Some of Bye Bye Butterfly by Pauline Oliveros, and perhaps a, a precursor to sampling too, just using somebody else's recorded material in that way. The San Francisco Tech Music Centre put on a lot of shows around that time, and they featured some pioneering work by many different composers, including two that stand out as um, very well-respected composers um, of today, is Steve Reich and Terry Riley. They're pioneers of minimalism, which concerns itself with the repetition and gradual change over time of a piece of music, and you can hear that in the two works by them that I'm going to play you now, which were performed at the San Francisco Tape Music Centre in the 60s, and at various other places as well. This first one is It's Gonna Rain by Steve Reich, and I'll read you a little quote about it yet again. The voice belongs to a young, black, Pentecostal preacher, who called himself Brother Walter, I recorded him along with The Pigeons and Traffic one Sunday afternoon in Union Square in downtown San Francisco. Later at home I started playing with tape loops of his voice and, by accident, discovered the process of letting two identical loops go gradually out of phase with each other. In the first part of the piece, the two loops are lined up in unison, gradually move completely out of phase with each other, and then slowly move back to unison. Finally, the process moves to eight voices, and the effect is a kind of controlled chaos which may be appropriate to the subject matter, the end of the world. Unfortunately I haven't got the whole piece of this, but I've got a short extract to give you an idea of what it's like. This is It's Gonna Rain, Steve Reich,
1: 1965. (music) it's gone 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 it's it's
2: gonna
0: Surprisingly titled It's Gonna Rain, that was by Steve Reich from 1965 um onto Terry Riley, after some tape-based experiments in the early 60s, he he slowly worked on a piece that ended up being called Poppy No Good. And after recording a lot of saxophone samples that his friend played, he put them together in a a very unique and original way in this minimalist piece that I'm just about to play you. It was originally performed throughout the country at various all-night flights with dancers and light shows, etc. So it's very much part of a multimedia experience. And this version is from 1968, a show called Poppy No Good and the Phantom Band Purple Modal Strobe Ecstasy with the Daughters of Destruction. Those crazy 60s beatniks. of Poppy No Good by Terry Riley, written in the mid-60s and performed in 1968. Uh, Coming to the last piece in this section on live electronics is a piece by MEV, which is Musica Electronica Viva, who were a bunch of American composers living in Rome in the mid-60s. And they decided just to get together and have a jam and just see what they come up with. And they're a lot more based on jazz and improvisation, and they used all sorts of instruments from cellos, saxophones, homemade circuits, and mics, and an early Moog as well. So a very a very broad range of things that they used in their music. This is an extract from the, the first group jam they ever did, and it's called Spacecraft. And it is very short because I think it sounds bloody awful. <laughs> MEV Spacecraft from 1967, that's a very short extract because some of their improvisation sessions could last up to six hours. And if they were playing that for six hours, then I'm sure some sort of drugs were involved to just allow them to do that. Just to close up on electronic music and performance, it's worth mentioning a particular piece by Alvin Lussier, another contemporary and collaborator of John Cage his work called Music for Solo Performer, in which the performer's brainwaves are used to resonate percussion instruments placed around the performance space in a way similar to in Rainforest, using the percussion instruments as speakers to a certain extent. So this is a way of playing instruments without actually touching them, without using your hands in, in any way whatsoever. And in a tenuous link, another way of making music without using your hands at all is to program it into a computer and it was in the early 60s that computer music really came came into its own and actually um, grew and developed. Most of the early experiments at making music with a computer took place at Bell Telephone Laboratories in New Jersey in the mid to late 50s They initially had an IBM 704, which was being used to research the transmission of telephone conversations digitally. one engineer who liked music started to develop software that could produce sounds. Um, This guy was called Max Matthews. He wrote Music 1 in 1957, which was a, a very, very basic program that all it could really do was produce a single triangle wave. However, with the help of Joan Miller, he continued to work on the software, which became known as the Music N series. This next piece was written using Music 2 software on an IBM 704 in 1961 and is the first example of a computer singing. The music is by Max Matthews. Um, I don't actually know who wrote this, but it's a quite a traditional well-known song. And the voice programming is by John Kelly, and Carol Lochbaum. programmed by Max Matthews um, and John Kelly and Carol Lockbaum, and it was this that provided the inspiration to have the HAL 9000 computer sing this song as it dies in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, in nineteen sixty one James Tenney joined the team at Bell Labs officially to work on psychoacoustics, but really to work on computer music because Bell gave them these early composers a lot of support, particularly John Pierce was one of the managers there, and he was very interested in this, and I think he also composed some pieces but one of the very early pieces that James Tenney managed to program into this very clunky and very difficult to use system was analogue number one noise study and it's based on his commute from New York to New Jersey where the Bell Labs was via the Holland Tunnel. So here it is James Tenney Analogue Number One. Analogue number one, noise study, by James Tenney, and made in 1961 at Bell Laboratories. Apparently, um, it obviously must have been quite an intense journey through the Holland Tunnel. I don't know what it's like now, but it seems quite intense. And it's strange that he decided to call it Analogue Number One, because it's one of the first completely digital pieces of music. Around about this time, the early 60s, IBM came up with um, a brand new computer using transistors instead of valves, because the early computers were based on valves. And both Bell Labs and Princeton University bought one. This was the IBM 7094. So people at Princeton University, at the Electronic Labs, could also begin experimenting with computer music and they could run the latest version of the music software, which is by the mid-60s, was Music 4. But it's it's worth going into how this computer music was made at the time, because it, it seemed extremely difficult and extremely frustrating. Because firstly, the computers were programmed by a punched card system, uh, which was incredibly time-consuming, because you had to sit down and type in cards and you didn't have any keyboard or didn't recognise letters or words or anything. So it was extremely time-consuming. And on top of this, they couldn't actually work in anything like real-time. In fact, the main computers didn't produce any sound whatsoever, but only samples encoded onto a tape, which then had to be translated into sound by another computer, an IBM 1620 at Bell Labs. So the people at Princeton had to drive all the way from princeton down to new jersey to get this translated and apparently the average turnaround time is two weeks so it's two weeks before they could hear what what exactly they had written and if any mistakes had happened so it was incredibly laborious time-consuming process but despite this there were people that were highly dedicated to it and carried on developing carried on writing music and one of these was Jean-Claude Risset, who came over from France in the mid-60s to um, study what was going on at Bell Labs, and he ended up writing this piece, which he finally finished in 1969, and this is called Mutations. An Extract from Mutations by Jean-Claude Risset. Um there was also a film made, an abstract film made in about the 1972 uh, with that as its soundtrack. So perhaps a precursor to the music video there. And the other interesting thing about that piece was it was the first piece to use a new synthesis technique called Frequency Modulation Synthesis or FM as it's come to be known. And this was a technique developed by a guy called John Chowning at Stanford University, uh, with a little help from Bell Labs. Um, I'll now let John Trowning continue the story, and he talks about the particular piece that I'm going to play next as well.
3: The Institut de Recherche et Coordination Acoustique Musique, known as IRCAM, conceived and directed by Pierre Boulez, opened in 1975 as part of the Centre Georges Pompidou in Paris. I received from IRCAM a commission for the Institute's first major concert series, Perspectives of the Twentieth Century, given in Paris in 1977-78 by Luciano Berrio, director of IRCAM's Department of Electroacoustic Music. Following five years of planning, STRIA was realized during the summer and autumn of 1977 at Stanford University's Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics, known as CARMA, or CCRMA. Computer music at Stanford began in 1964 and shared a computer system with the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory directed by John McCarthy and Les Ernest. Stria was premiered the 13th of October 1977 in the grand Salle of the Centre Georges Pompidou. The work is based on the unique possibilities of computer synthesis, of precise control over the spectral components or partials of a sound.
0: This is Stria by John Chowning large extract from Stria by John Chowning. And although that piece took five years to actually work out and five years of planning and thinking about it, um, it only took two months to actually produce when it came down to it. So computer technology had moved on quite a way by this point. Um, That was finally produced in, as he said, 1977. And by the late 70s and early 80s, the focus of computer generated music had shifted from large non real time mainframes to home computers connected to digital analog synths. But the lessons learned from these early years have been applied to digital audio in all its forms, from CDs to MP3s, etc. etc. So we have to uh, thank Max Matthews and and his team for allowing this podcast to be possible, (laughs) for instance. So that's the end of computer music for now. I'll be talking a little bit more about the integrated systems of computers and synthesizers, the way they work together in the next program, because it's about the the rise of analog synths. Um, But before I move on to the radiophonic Workshop, I just have to mention a great compilation that I got a lot of this music from, and it's called Ohm, just O-H-M. It's three CDs and a lot of stuff that I played in this part and a lot of stuff I played in part four is on that, is on these three CDs. It's really excellent compilation. It's quite expensive, but it's definitely worth getting if you're into this kind of stuff. Okay, now on to the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and I think they deserve a special mention, especially as um, they are the heart of British electronica, but not simply because of that, but because they popularized electronic music more than, than anyone else has. A lot of the artists I've played so far have been quite avant garde cutting edge composers, but they really were never going to appear to a large audience. However, at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, because they were writing music for TV and radio programmes, they, they had to appear to a, a large audience. And the likelihood is that the first piece of tape music that the average Briton had ever heard had been made by the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Now, there is a really good documentary about the workshop. Which you can get on YouTube. It's called The Alchemists of Sound, and it goes into it in a lot more detail than I can really hear. So what I'm going to do here is give you a, a little bit of the basic history, but mainly concentrating on playing the music. The BBC Radiophonic Workshop was set up in 1958, after some initial experiments in 56 and 57 by Desmond Briscoe and Daphne Oram who did some tape-based effects and music work for some early radio plays. And they based at room number 13 at BBC Radio Headquarters in Maidavale. Vale, and their main brief was to produce sound effects and music for radio shows. With an initial budget of £2,000, they set up some tape recorders, a filter, some oscillators, a very crackly echo machine, a BBC-designed mixer, and a device which they called a wobulator which was really a frequency-modulated oscillator. Apparently, at the start, the BBC had a strange rule that nobody could work there for more than three months, because a doctor friend of a senior manager had said that prolonged exposure to weird noises could cause a nervous breakdown. But they soon forgot about this silly rule, and they ended up with a core of four composers. John Baker, Dick Mills... Brian Hodgson and Delia Derbyshire, and I've got a little little bit of music by each of them, and I'll start off with John Baker, who came up with this piece called Quiz Time. I don't know if it was a show for Quiz Time. It's really hard to find out what what TV programs these were actually for. Um, but this music is really incredibly different to both the avant-garde music that was around at the time and to normal TV music, so it really stood out to the audience. This is John Baker quiz time. quiz time. A quite phenomenal piece considering that it's just made through tape manipulation. They really did work hard on these things. Next up is a piece by Brian Hodgson. It's not actually a piece of music. It's a a very famous sound effect from the TV series Doctor Who and it was created by uh, dragging a key along a a piece of piano wire and then manipulating it and adding loads of different things. But the key sound is a is one of the key sounds. If you know what I mean, um, it was the sound effect for the TARDIS, which is time and relative dimensions in space. Take off, which is the first sci-fi hit in Britain. Uh, this is TARDIS take off by Brian Hodgson. Hardest takeoff, a sound effect from 1962 by Brian Hodgson. Next up, um, Dick Mills. Dick Mills was there from the very start of the workshop in 1958, and he was mainly known for his special effects work, but he also wrote some a very good individual piece of music, like this one, which is called Adagio. of Adagio by Dick Mills from I'm not sure exactly what year, I think it's about 1967 that one was actually, but it was still just mainly based on tape manipulation. Um, onto the final of the the initial four that that ran the workshop for a long time, um is Delia Derbyshire, who's considered to be the first lady of British, British electronica, and she joined the workshop in 1962. She's actually best known for her production work on the Doctor Who theme, um, the sci-fi show, which I've already mentioned, uh, which Brian Hodgson helped with. And there is quite a famous story that when she played it back to the composer, Ron Grainer, because she was just the producer, um, he said to her, did I write that? And to which she replied, most of it. But I'm not actually going to play that for you, because that's quite a famous piece. You should probably know that already. Um, what I'm going to play instead is the original piece by Delia, and this is called Pot O Fu, and it's really excellent. <laughs> of pot au there by Delia Dobson. Apparently pot au means pot on fire and it's like the French equivalent of a Lancashire hotpot or a Irish stew or something like that. So I don't actually know where that came from and why it's called that, but that's what it is called. In the late 60s, Delia and Brian also worked together on a sort of pop music venture with a guy called David Vorhaus. Um... After putting together a track called Love Without Sound in 1968, they got a record deal with Island Records, and this led to the album An Electric Storm, which I'll read the, read the back of now. Many sounds have never been heard by humans. Some sound waves you don't hear, but they reach you. Storm stereo techniques combine singers, instrumentalists and complex electronic sound. The emotional intensity is at a maximum. And I can certainly highly recommend this album. I think it's really good. And here's a track from it called Here Come the Fleas from 1969.
2: Yourself a week. Go back to sleep. Can't begin to clear that mess in the kitchen. The windows crack, the basin leaks. <laughs> I'm being quiet and down, but I can't even get up and No light on the stair, you just don't care, you better beware Or I might take a tumble
0: Great piece of music. Um, Anyone that's ever lived in a house with a lazy person will understand exactly what that's about. Also, interestingly, in that, Brian Hodgson was uh, the voice of the Caribbean gentleman, complained that he couldn't hear his steel band. Okay, on with the music. And the next piece is a short piece by David Kane, who I think joined the Radiophonic Workshop in about 1967. And this was made for Radio Sheffield, and Sheffield is very much a steel town. And so it's made using the sound from steel forks made in Sheffield. This is a ditty for Radio Sheffield by David Kane. Radio Sheffield, David Kane. Moving on into the early 70s, um, the workshop became more and more sophisticated as it went on, and synthesizers became more prevalent. And Malcolm Clarke, who joined in 1969, um, demonstrates this in a, a mix of tape and synthesized music in this piece called Bath Time. Thank <laughs> you. time by Malcolm Clarke. The next piece I'm going to play is by somebody called Tristram Carey, who is a very important figure in the early British electronic scene. If Delia Derbysh is the first lady of British electronica, then Tristram Carey is the first man, as he was experimenting with um, composing with tape around about the same time as Pierre Schaeffer was in the Paris studio. The difference is Carey had set up an independent studio in his garden shed. And he didn't really get much publicity. He did hear about what was going on in Paris, but apparently he couldn't afford to, to go there and join in, which um, sounds like a familiar story. In the early 70s, he did a bit of work for the BBC Radiophonic Workshop on the series Doctor Who yet again. And this is almost completely synthesised. And it's, it's also a lot more like the earlier avant-garde electronica. This particular piece is from 1972 and it's from an episode called Doctor Who and the Mutants. Tristram Carey from Doctor Who and the Mutants from 1972. Now the final piece of music I'm going to play now shows the full progression of the work of the Radiophonic Workshop from mainly tape based in the early 60s um, to tape and synthesiser combinations in the late 60s, early 70s through to this final piece from 1980 which is fully synthesised. And it's by Richard Denton and Martin Cook And it's the theme tune to the science and technology show Tomorrow's World. music from Tomorrow's World by Richard Denton and Martin Cook from 1980. Um, Also quite a heavy beat there that obviously influenced by Kraftwerk because by 1980 that that had become um, an almost standard in electronic music. The BBC Radiophonic Workshop was closed in 1998 after failing to break even. And I guess because of the the spread of the technology, um, it was a lot easier for them to commission outwork to home studios but we still have their legacy and their amazing music from back in the day and we're very grateful for that so i've covered pretty much everything to do with the tape music in their 60s and 70s and next time i'm going to be talking about the rising popularity of the synthesizer there'll be a bit of moog a bit of ems and a bit of a buckler in there so some names you perhaps not have heard of and there will be mention of some people that I've mentioned this time as well because they're quite important in the development, uh, particularly of EMS. So it just remains for me to say thank you for those people that have sent me emails of encouragement. It's very much appreciated. And thank you even more to the, the one person that sent me some money. Um, if you like what you hear and wish to do- donate to its continuation, um, if you have a PayPal account, you can send money to com which is shwekl at hotmail.com, or you can just email me at that address with any comments. Um, that's it for part five. Part six should be ready by about early to mid-December. Um, goodbye. Mm.